Hi, this is Mrs. McFedries, and we're reading Blood on the River, Jamestown, 1607, by Alyssa Carbone. And we're on chapter three. I may go ahead and read chapter three and four this time, because chapter three is a little short. Okay. <clears throat> the evidence at the top, I'm on page 14. The evidence at the top is by Master George Percy, and it's his observations, and he writes... The 5th of January, 1607, we anchored in the downs, but the winds continued contrary so long that we were forced to stay there some time where we suffered great storms. So that's the evidence that the author is putting in there for us. Chapter 3. I rub my eyes and blink in the dim light of the tween deck. The ship pitches and rolls. I only know it's morning because of the bit of light that peeks in around the gun ports and the closed hatch, and because the roosters and hens down in the hold know, and they have started a racket. The tween deck reminds me of the root cellar at the orphanage, with its closed walls and ceiling. It is one long room running almost the length of the ship, though one can hardly walk for the barrels and crates that are taking up most of the room. At first, a few of the gentlemen hung pieces of cloth to make partitions, since they thought they deserved some privacy. But those have all come down now in favor of setting up crates as card tables and barrels as sitting stools for their card games. The chickens are luckier than we are. Most days their crates are brought up on deck and they get fresh air to breathe, and the ship's cats and two dogs have the run of the place. So do the ship's 1,000 rats. <laughs> we passengers are only allowed up to empty slop buckets or get the stew pots for our meals. Captain Newport says he doesn't want us getting in the sailor's way up on deck. We are all seasick and bored, and we are going absolutely no place. We have had nothing but storms and winds blowing the wrong direction for weeks now, and so we sit anchored in the cold, close enough to see England's shores, but still trapped down in this hole of a tween deck with the stench of urine and vomit and chicken dung. The gentlemen complain constantly. They want to sail back to shore and go home. Sir Edward Maria Wingfield is the most vocal in his complaints. He is furious at Captain Smith, who keeps reminding the gentlemen that they have signed seven-year contracts with the Virginia Company and that and they can't quit this voyage. I can see why Master Wingfield wants to quit. Even living on the streets was better than this. Next to me, sleeping in our bed, a straw and canvas mattress thrown over some barrels, are Richard and snot-nosed nine-year-old James. James is servant to the gentleman, George Percy, and afraid of everything. The men sleep two to a bed, but all three of us boys are crowded in together. There is a fourth boy, Nathaniel. He's older than I am, probably 13 or 14. It's a good thing he's on one of the other ships, or they'd have us sleeping four to a bed. I kick James to wake him. Give me some room, you little worm. James groans and rolls over. He leaves a smudge of snot on the canvas. I'm not a worm, he whines sleepily. Everyone is waking up now. I hear yawning, grunting, men relieving themselves into slop buckets. James, bring me my wash water now. Master Percy is not a patient man, and James has to hop up to fetch water even before he has a chance to rub the sleep out of his eyes. Richard is still sleeping, 
He's, he is the soundest sleeper I have ever seen. Not even roosters crowing, crowing and men clomping right by his ear wake him. But Reverend Hunt is very ill with a seasickness and he will need help. I jostle Richard hard. He groans but doesn't open his eyes. Fine, I think. Let him get a lecture on slothfulness from Reverend Hunt. James and Richard have become good friends to each other, even though James is a gentleman's son and Richard is a commoner. They are not my friends, though. I've, I have kept my distance from them and from everyone else on board the Susan Constant. Instead of trying to decipher which of the men are to be trusted and which are not, I've made a simple for myself. I don't trust no one. It is a philosophy that worked for me in the poorhouse and on the streets of London and at the orphanage. I see no reason to change. Captain Smith has not beat me yet. He does not seem inclined to, but you never can tell. There is not much required of my aboard ship just to bring him his wash water in the morning and empty the slot buckets we all use. There is not much for any of us to do. This is why there is so much time for the bubbling of discontent. And today is the day it boils over. I have had enough, Master Wingfield announces. The food is monotonous and salty. The commoners stink, and the storms will not cease. We will sail back to London at once. Who is with me? Aye, several of the gentlemen call out. We are with you. We're ready to turn back. Captain Smith stands and addresses them all. Are you all cowards, he demands, and are you liars? Were you lying when you signed your contracts with the Virginia Company? I cringe. Captain Smith is especially angry today, and I know he has gone too far. I've seen how these gentlemen wield their power when they are insulted. Master Wingfield answers Captain Smith in a low growl. You have forgotten your place, Mr. Smith. They should never have sent you gentlemen on this voyage. Captain Smith nearly shouts it. You're all weak, every one of you. You know nothing about survival. Master Wingfield is livid. I think he's about to thrash Captain Smith. I would like to see a fight, but Reverend Hunt steps in. Sick as he is, Reverend Hunt calms Master Wingfield down and talks about how God wants us to be, bring Christianity to the new world. He somehow makes a fragile peace, somehow convinces the gentleman to wait just a little longer for an east wind. But I know there is no peace inside Master Wingfield. I know it is only a matter of time before he strikes. It will not be with his fists, as we commoners do. It will be with his power, and it will be worse than fists. Chapter 4 The evidence says, Travel south until you're butter melts, then turn right. That's an old British mariner's axiom or saying um, about how to get to the new world. <laughs> so that's kind of funny. You leave England, travel south until your butter melts, and then you turn right. Chapter 4. February 1607. My soul nearly left my body last night. I felt it slippery and shimmery inside the shell of my body, trying to slide out through the top of my head. But Reverend Hunt came and laid his hands on my brow to keep my soul from leaving and prayed for me to recover. And so today my fever is broken and I'm still in my body, still aboard the Susan Constant, 
bound for the new world. We are finally sailing. I feel the speed of the ship under me. We have left England's waters and we're heading south toward the Canary Islands off the coast of Africa. Captain Newport says our route will be like a big circle following the winds and currents. We'll sail south to the Canaries, then west to the West Indies, and then north to Virginia. To go back to England, if I ever do, we will sail still farther north and then east to England to finish the circle. Captain Newport says the fevers gripped us because we stayed so long in the fog and cold of England's winter. Now it is warmer every day. If my soul had gone out of my body, I'd have left the rolling of the ship, the stench in the closed-up tween deck, the rats that sometimes scuttle over my face in the night. I'd have left this living shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder with a crowd of gentlemen, each of them thinking he's better than the rest, and all of them thinking that they are much better than I. But I'd also have left the chance to see the islands, and beyond them, Virginia. I'd have left my chance to dig for gold. So if it hadn't been for Reverend Hunt and his big, meaty, soul-blocking hands, last night I would have joined my mother in heaven or my father in hell and missed the whole exciting adventure of it. I pull on my slops and tie them at my knees and at my waist. I'm so skinny now they nearly fall off of me. How long was I ill? Ten days? Two weeks? I wobble on unsteady legs. Air. That's what I need. Fresh air. Someone throws up the hatch. This is my chance. I pick up a slop bucket, my ticket to the ship's deck. I start up the ladder, carrying the slop bucket carefully. I glance down into it, human waste and vomit sloshing together. Bad idea. I feel woozy, almost lose my balance. Look up, I tell myself. And I do, and in a moment my head is out of the hatch, opening, and I'm looking at the violet blue sky with wispy pink clouds. Sunrise at sea. <clears throat> Look at what the cat dragged in, a sailor calls. He's pulling on a thick line and looking down at me from the foredeck. Haven't seen this one in weeks. Thought maybe he's dead. Stinks bad enough down there, says another sailor. Could be a few dead ones lying beyond the ale barrels and no one would even know. The sailors laugh, but I don't care. I stand, breathing in the clear, fresh air. I go to the railing, throw the contents of the bucket overboard, and then stop in utter amazement. I stare, unbelieving. The ocean, which just a few weeks ago in England was its usual black green, has completely changed. I'm looking at an ocean so clear and so blue that when a long silver fish comes to inspect what I have just tossed in, I can see the yellow stripes on his back. I linger, feeling the wind on my face. The sails are bellied out orange gold in the early morning sunlight. I feel very glad that I did not leave this adventure last night. Below with you now, a sailor tells me. You'll be getting underfoot up here. I want to tell him I'm waiting for the mess pot for the servants, the one that James and Richard and I share with the two men who serve Master Wingfield. But I'm not sure I can make it down the ladder with the heavy pot of oatmeal. I'll wait until I'm stronger before I do that chore. Captain Newport comes strutting toward me. 
He has a scowl on his face, and I'm afraid he's about to whip me for loitering on deck. I scramble down the ladder, bucket in hand. Captain Newport follows me. He swings down the ladder easily, even with the only one arm. I head to a dark corner of the tween deck, hoping he won't see me. But it's not me he's after. Smith! Captain Newport's baritone voice fills the tween deck. Or fills the tween deck. Two burly sailors come down the ladder and stand on either side of him. Sir, Captain Smith responds and stands straight and strong. Captain Newport looks angry, though I'm not sure it's Captain Smith he's angry with. By my authority as captain of this fleet, I hereby place you under arrest. Captain Smith frowns. On what charges? He demands. He stares right at Master Wingfield as he says it, so I suspect he knows who's accused him of a crime. Captain Newport glances at Master Wingfield with a look of disgust. I will present the charges, says Mr. Wingfield. Somehow, despite the fact that we've been at sea for nearly two months, his silk doublé and velvet breeches still look relatively fresh. You are under arrest for intent to overthrow the government of this mission, murder the council members, and make yourself ruler. My mouth drops open. Wingfield, you are a liar, Captain Smith growls. And you, sir, will be hanged when we reach the West Indies, Master Wingfield says coldly. Captain Smith sputters, but no words come to him. His face and neck are red as fire. He reels back. I see his fist ball up. He's about to throw a punch. Yes, I want to shout. Smash his face in. This will be even better than watching boys or drunken sailors slug it out. I want to see blood spurt out of Master Wingfield's high-ranking nose. But in the split second before Captain Smith lets loose with his fist, it is as if something reins him in. He hunches his shoulders, opens and closes his hands, takes a deep breath. <sighs> then he turns to Captain Newport and speaks almost calmly. Captain, do you believe these charges which have been brought against me? He asks. Captain Newport looks startled, as if he didn't expect this question. I, I, I cannot leave a suspected traitor unshackled, he says. And what if I accuse Master Wingfield of being a traitor, Captain Smith says. After all, it was he who wanted to turn back when we were stranded all those weeks at the Downs. It is he and his gentlemen friends who want to go back to England to their comforts every time there is a storm. He says the word gentlemen as if it is a pile of sheep dung in the kitchen, and this makes me smile. This is how they treat their signed seven-year contracts with Virginia Company. You have no right to accuse me, Master Wingfeld shouts. You are a commoner. You cannot leave level charges against your betters. My betters, Captain Smith raises his eyebrows. A pig has more royal blood than you do. The sound Master Wingfield makes next is a cross between a growl and a shout. Insulting his bloodline is like throwing lie in his face. He draws his dagger and comes at Captain Smith. 
For a moment, all is confusion. Reverend Hunt catches Master Wingfield's arm. The two sailors step between the angry men, and the Captain Newport's voice booms out, Release your weapon! Let the law handle this! Then he orders the sailors, Nelson, Peel, put Smith in irons! The two sailors hustle Captain Smith over to the chain bolts that stand ready fastened to the wall of the tween deck, waiting to restrain a prisoner or any drunken sailor who has started a fistfight. They clamp Captain Smith's ankles and wrists into the chains. I can't believe Captain Newport is doing this. Now Master Wingfield will simply walk over and slit his throat. But when I look back at Master Wingfield, I see he is pale and shaken. He's dropped his dagger and is wiping his face with his handkerchief. Reverend Hunt has his hand on his shoulder and is talking to him quietly. Master Wingfield might be a liar, but he is no murderer. Still, I've heard the gentleman whispering. In the close quarters of the tween deck, it is hard to miss much. They say Captain Smith is only an ignorant commoner, and yet he wants the power of a noble. They say he will try to make over or take over the whole mission if he is not disposed of. They say if it were not for Captain Smith insisting that they stay the course, they would be back in their comfortable homes in England by now. And I wonder how long it will be before someone else, someone who does have the heart of a murderer, slits Captain Smith's throat while he sleeps. So that is the end of chapter four. And we'll meet for chapter five next time. Thank you.